Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. For nursery, now here's Pastor if you Sean. need to do that, the rest of you can open your Bibles to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, we're continuing the 12 names of Jesus that we started last week. We did five of those names. This morning, we're going to do seven of those names. And last week, I talked about doing something stupid when I was in high school. Well, this morning, I'm going to talk about doing something stupid when I was in college. So how many of you have ever done something stupid when you were in college? And some of you are afraid to raise your hands because you don't want to be incriminated. It was a very icy, cold morning, and I had a very early class that I had to get to. This is back when I lived in Colorado Springs, and on icy, cold mornings, what do you normally do? You normally go out, and you defrost your car, right? You you spend about 10 or 15 minutes, you put the defrost on, you go out there, and you scrape the front windshield, you scrape the rear, rear windshield, you scrape the mirrors, you do all that stuff like a normal human being, right? But if you're in a hurry, and you're late to class, what do you do? You scrape just a tiny little opening in front of the driver's side so you can see where you're going. And that's what I did. So I got in the car and started to drive. And then I realized I was about to take out four or five cars down the street. And I stopped. And I got out of the car and I said, Sean, you're an idiot. You could have just taken a little bit more time to scrape so that you could clearly see. Now there's an issue there about being able to clearly see. It was a metaphor for my own life at that time. I was not able to see physically, but at the same time I was blinded by my impatience and I couldn't see spiritually what was really going on. So how important is it for us to be able to see? Not just physically seeing, but spiritually seeing. Many of you have read The Pilgrim's Progress. You know it's one of my favorite books. There's that scene in the Pilgrim's Progress that's a joyous scene. If you remember, Christian and Hopeful are thrown into Doubting Castle. And as they're in Doubting Castle, giant despair comes and beats them and and basically treats them poorly. And they're almost at the brink of suicide. They want to commit suicide. They want to end their lives. They are so in despair. And then Christian realizes he has a key. The key is called promise, and the key promise opens any door into Doubting Castle, and so they're able to escape. And then the next scene, they go to what's called the Delectable Mountains. And in the Delectable Mountains is this lush, glorious mountain area where they go up and they get refreshed by these four shepherds. The shepherds refresh them, they minister to them, and then one of the shepherds takes them up on this hill, and the hill is called Clear. And if you remember the scene the shepherd gives them what's called a perspective glass, probably like a telescope. And Christian and Hopeful look through the perspective glass and they see heaven. They see the glory of heaven. They see what are called the shining ones of heaven. And as they're so close to seeing heaven, they begin to weep and then they begin to dance and they're joyful because they've had a vision of what soon awaits them. A clear vision on Mount Clear to see their future. Now, why do I draw your attention to seeing clearly this morning? 
not a foggy little type of seeing that you do through a window on a cold morning where you don't take time to scrape, but a true seeing. Here's my prayer for us this morning as a church family. I pray that we would take time just to pause and ask the Holy Spirit to give us spiritual eyes this morning to see Jesus in all of his glory. We need to be able to see Jesus, especially at Christmas time when it's all about supposedly Jesus, but many times we don't take the time to see. So we're going to continue our theme this morning of the 12 names of Jesus taking off the 12 days of Christmas. Last week, we looked at the first five. Let me just remind you, if you weren't here last week, you can go back and get it on our podcast or whatever. Uh, Jesus is the eternal word. He's the light of the world. He's the giver of new birth. He's God in the flesh. And he's God's glory full of grace and truth. And so we're going to continue reading in John chapter 1, but we're going to pick up in verse 35. And this is not necessarily a Christmas passage of Scripture, but what I think it does for us is it helps us at this Christmas to be able to see Jesus in all of his glory. So let's pick up, if you've got a Bible, John chapter 1, verse 35. If you do not have a Bible, there should be some in the seats in front of you, in the, in the pew racks there. So let's read together. The next day, again, John, this is John the Baptist, was standing with two of his disciples And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. And he brought him to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, So you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of God of man. John's primary theme in chapter 1 and throughout the entire gospel of John is that we would see Jesus. 
And by seeing Jesus, we would in turn worship Jesus, we would follow Jesus, we would trust Jesus, we would obey Jesus. And so one of the primary themes of this first chapter is is seeing, seeing Jesus. So here's our big idea for this morning. This is the overarching theme that emerges from this chapter, this passage of Scripture. And it's simply this. Before we can pledge allegiance to Jesus, we must see him as he truly is. Now, in school, we pledge allegiance to the flag. And I'm not against pledging allegiance to the flag. I think we should pledge allegiance to the flag. But there is someone greater than the flag. There is someone who is King of kings and Lord of lords. And we are to pledge our allegiance to Jesus. But before we can pledge our allegiance to Jesus, we've got to see him for who he is. Because there's a lot of confusion in our world today as to who Jesus truly is. Would you agree with me? Some people see him as a guru. They kind of walked around back in the day with long hair and he had some cool sayings. Some people see him as a good moral teacher. Some people see him as a religious leader. Some people see him as one of many ways to get to God. But people don't see him as the absolute Lord and Savior who demands our allegiance as King of Kings. So John here is taking great pains in this chapter to draw us to see Jesus. The word see, seek, search shows up about seven times in this passage. And so John is wanting us to see Jesus. And the disciples say, come and see, come and see. What are you seeking? And so here's the question. What exactly are we supposed to see? How will seeing Jesus help us to follow him more passionately? Well, last week we looked at five. This morning we're going to look at seven. Seven glorious truths that emerge from this passage of Scripture that will move us, hopefully, to see Jesus and by seeing Jesus to love him, to serve him, to obey him, to passionately follow him, to love him with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. So what's the first thing that we see? First of all, we see Jesus as the Lamb of God. Notice what verse 35 says. The next day again, John was standing with the two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus and wa- as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. Now, earlier in this passage of Scripture, we're introduced to John the Baptist. John the Baptist comes on the scene. He's not the Messiah. He's not the Christ. He's the forerunner to the Christ. He's the one pointing to Christ. He's a a voice of one crying out in the wilderness, look at Jesus. And notice what he says there. He says, behold, the Lamb of God. That word behold means look, stop, pay attention. Jesus is walking by and he says, look at this man walking by. He is in the flesh, walking in front of you, the Lamb of God. God. And then back up in verse 29, he's called the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Behold, look, pay attention, the Lamb of God is walking before you, but he looks like a human. Why in the world is he called the Lamb of God? It's a very interesting terminology that John the Baptist would use for a human being to walk by saying, there's a lamb. Now, when we hear the word lamb, it should draw up images in our minds of the Old Testament. The Exodus. Exodus chapter 12 and the Passover. Do you remember the story of the Passover? The Egyptians were in bondage in, I mean, the Israelites were in bondage in Egypt. They were slaves. 
And God told them, I'm going to release you. I'm going to free you. I'm going to get you out of slavery, but here's how it's going to work. You've got to get a pure, spotless lamb, and that lamb will live with you for 14 days. And at the end of 14 days, you're to slaughter that lamb, you're to kill that lamb, and you're to pour the blood of that lamb over the doorpost and lintels of your house. And then on the night that the destroyer, the angel of death, passes over your house and he sees the blood, you will not be destroyed. Your firstborn son will not be killed. If he doesn't see the blood, as he did with the Egyptians, all the firstborn children would be dead. So here's the issue of the Lamb of God. It's this whole idea that the blood of a lamb must cover our sin so that we do not experience God's judgment. There has to be a sin-bearing substitute in our place to die in our place so that God's righteous judgment against sin can be paid for. And that's what Jesus did. Jesus is the Lamb of God that takes away our sins. He takes away all of our sins. He, he, he covers our sins. He satisfies our sins. Think about the imagery all throughout the Bible that talk about Jesus being a sacrificial lamb, the Lamb of God who takes away our sins. One of the most famous passages is Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, verse 7, speaking of Jesus, a prophecy. He was oppressed. He was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that it's led to a, the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus is the Lamb of God that went silently to the cross to die for our sins. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, Peter says, Knowing that you were ransomed, that you were bought, that you were paid for, from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not, you weren't bought with perishable things such as gold and silver. What were you bought with? The precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. One of the key figures in the book of Revelation is Jesus as the lamb of God in the throne room. The lamb that was slaughtered, the lamb that was slain. In Revelation chapter 5, verses 7 through 10 And he went, this is Jesus, the Lamb. He took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scrolls and open its seals, for you were slain, you were slaughtered, and by your blood, the Lamb, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you've made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. From, from the Old Testament all the way to the new, Jesus is the slaughtered lamb that dies in our place, and he's the only one qualified to be the one to die for us. He's the only one that lived a perfectly sinless life. That's why the announcement of the angel, Matthew 1, 21, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. I think this Christmas time, one of the most important things that you and I can understand, that you and I can grasp, that you and I can appreciate, is that Jesus is the Lamb of God that takes away our sins. Not just some of our sins, but every single one of our sins. He takes them as far as the east is from the west. Do the east and the west ever meet? He takes them and drops them to the bottom of the ocean. When he was on that cross and he cried out, it is finished, he paid for our sins in full as the Lamb of God. And notice the response of the disciples. Look at verse 37. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. 
when they saw that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away their sin, they followed Jesus. They followed Jesus. Now, what's the second thing that we see about Jesus in this passage of Scripture? Jesus is the identity changer. Now, Jesus turns to these two disciples and says, what are you guys, what are you guys wanting? What's going on behind, here, behind the scenes here? And they say, Jesus, we want to know where you're staying. And what does Jesus say? Come and see. Come and see. Come and spend time with me. Come and see me, and then you'll understand. And then he, he, he goes, and Andrew there goes and gets his brother, Simon, and he says in verse 41, he found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we found the Messiah, which means the Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. And Jesus looked at Simon, looked, looked Simon Peter in the eye and said, okay, I'm changing your name. You're no longer called Simon, you're now called Peter, which means rock. Do I have the right here to change anybody's name? Can I go down here to Russell and say, Russell, your name no longer is Russell, your name now is Abner. Or your name is Bartholomew. He would look at me like, you have no right to change my name. If you're Jesus, you have the right to change someone's name. And he goes to Peter and says, Peter, your name's changed. You are now called rock. Now, what do we know about Peter from the New Testament? Does he live up to his name as being a rock? Peter is impetuous. Peter puts his foot in his mouth. Peter is one of those guys that has great intention but but lacks follow-through. But do you realize that there's that key moment in Peter's life where he makes a confession about who Jesus is, and it's upon that confession that Jesus says, I'm going to build my church on the rock of Peter's confession. He says in Matthew 16, 15 through 18, Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of a living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus changed Peter's identity from being just Simon, son of Jonah, son of John, to rock. Now, here's what happens to you when you become a Christian. Jesus changes your identity. You go from being a spiritually dead rebel at war with God, enslaving your sins, to being transferred to the kingdom of light where you are an adopted child, loved by God, and accepted into his family. What does Paul say in 2 Corinthians 5.17? Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's what? A new creation the old has passed away behold the new has come so if you're in christ this morning if you're if you're a christian you're a new person you have a new identity god has given you a new identity you've gone from being a sinner steep in your sin to now being called a a child of god being loved by god jesus can change your identity he takes you out of that domain of darkness paul says in colossians 1 13 and 14 he's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now there's one thing that we need to see in order to truly follow Jesus. We need to see this. We are helpless, hopeless, and hellbound without Jesus. And he's the only one that has the power to come and rescue us out of our sin and change our names. He changes our identity. He changes our names. He puts us into God's 
family. The way that he changed Peter's name and, and came to him and says, your name is now Peter. Your name is now Rock. God has called us out of darkness into light, and he's changed our identity through Jesus Christ. Now, what's the third thing that we see about Jesus? We see Jesus as the demander of allegiance. Look at verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Follow me. Two two small words, right? Follow me. But powerful words because, number one, it's a command. It is a command from Jesus. It's not a suggestion. It's not some helpful advice. This is a command from Jesus. Come follow me. Leave all, follow me. Come to me. It's a command, but it's also in the present tense in the original language, which means that we are to keep on continually as a lifestyle following Jesus. So when Jesus calls us to follow him, it's not one of these things where I say a quick prayer, I sign on the dotted line, I just do some religious little thing. It is we give our entire lives to Jesus and we follow him. We pledge our allegiance to him as a lifestyle. We follow him. You guys have heard me say this before. It's what our friend Dr. Artazerti has said many times about when God calls you, when God demands allegiance, it's not a polite invitation that you can decline. If Don and I were to get an invitation to go to a Christmas party, we could open that invitation and we could say, you know what, I really don't want to go. And we could politely not RSVP. We could say we have other plans. We can, we can just say we don't want to go. If I get a jury summons in the mail, can I politely decline? No, I have to show up. It's compliant that I show up because it's a summons. There's an authority behind it. And to not show up would mean I'm breaking the law. And so when Jesus calls us, it's not an invitation for you to politely decline. It's a summons from the king. And when you don't obey, when you don't follow, you're defying the king. And so Jesus has the right to demand our allegiance. So let me just say this this morning. If you're here and you've not submitted your entire life to Jesus, you've never followed him, what better day than today than to do it now? Follow Jesus. In the, in, the, in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus puts it a different way. He says in Luke chapter 9, verses 23 through 25, Jesus said to them all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever will save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? When Jesus calls us to himself in salvation, it's a call to come and die. It's to die to self. It's to die to self-sufficiency. It's to die die to everything that we hold on to and to turn and embrace Jesus as our all in all, to follow him daily, to take up our cross, and to surrender our life to him. He's the only one that can demand allegiance as the king. What's the fourth thing that we see about Jesus in this passage of Scripture? Jesus is the fulfillment of prophecy. Now, where do we see that? Look at verse 44. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Philip goes to Nathanael and says, we found him. We found him of whom Moses talked about. 
Well, what's Moses? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And also who the prophets prophesied about. So what Nathaniel, I mean, what Philip is saying to Nathaniel here is that we found the one who was prophesied in the Old Testament. From, from Genesis to Malachi, it points to Jesus. And notice how specific it says there. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Very specific town, Nazareth. Very specific lineage, Joseph. From the, from the lineage of David. And notice back up in verse 41. When Andrew comes to Simon, he basically says the same thing that Philip says to Nathaniel. We found the Messiah, the Christ. We found the Messiah. The word Messiah means anointed one. Christ, anointed one. Now, if you go back to your Old Testament, you'll find that three different types of people were anointed, were anointed with oil, anointed to show that they had power, anointed to show they had significance, anointed to show that God had a special task for them. Who were those that were anointed in the Old Testament? Prophets. Prophets spoke the word of God. They were anointed. Priests. Priests sacrificed, and they were anointed. And kings. Kings were anointed. Prophets, priests, and kings were anointed. But do you know something about your Old Testament? There never was one person who filled all three of those offices at one time. There was never a king who was a priest and a priest who was a prophet and a prophet who was a king. Jesus comes on the scene and he's the fulfillment of everything that the Old Testament was pointing to in the prophets, in the priests, in the kings, and they culminate in Jesus as the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies. Jesus is having a little discussion with the Pharisees later on in John's gospel. And he's basically rebuking the Pharisees for their failure to see him as the Messiah. And in in chapter 5, verse 39, he says, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is they, the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Basically what Jesus is saying is the entire Old Testament points to him. From Genesis to Malachi, it's all about him. Now, do you realize there are over 400 prophecies about Jesus in the Old Testament that all came true in the New? That's not a coincidence. That's, that's, if you do the math on that, that's amazing. 400 prophecies. And so in order to pledge allegiance to Jesus, we've got to see him as the fulfillment of all of those Old Testament prophecies, as the ultimate king, priest, prophet, as the one who literally came in the flesh of the, the lineage of David, born of Joseph of Nazareth. Now what's the fifth thing that we see about Jesus? This can be scary and this can be encouraging. Okay? I'm just going to give you a warning. The fifth thing we see is that Jesus is the seer into hearts. Now, Philip goes to Nathaniel and says, we found him. We found this, the one that Moses talked about, the one that was prophesied. We found the Messiah. He's from Nazareth. And what does Nathaniel say? Verse 46, can anything good come out of Nazareth? He's not real excited about this. But then notice what happens. Philip said to him, come and see. There's that wording again, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and told him, behold, an Israelite in whom there's no deceit. And Nathanael said to him, how do you, how do you know me? How, how can you look inside me? How can you look into my heart? How do you know who I am? And Jesus said to him, before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. 
Jesus was able to see into Nathanael's heart from afar. He could see into the depths of his heart. And Nathanael's a little taken back by that. How do you know these things, Jesus? Are, Are you psychic? Well, Jesus is not psychic. He's God. And he can see into hearts. And what does he say about Nathanael? He says, you're an Israelite in whom there's no deceit. Now, if you know your Old Testament, this should start making you think about a story in the Old Testament. Jesus is starting down a trail here to draw our attention to an Israelite who was very, very deceptive. Do you guys remember in the Old Testament, an Israelite who's very, very deceptive? There was an Israelite whose name meant deceiver. Jacob. Jacob's name meant deceiver. He was the mama's boy con man that was always deceiving people out of things. Remember, he, remember what he did? He deceived his brother Esau out of the birthright. Jacob is the deceiver. But you remember what happened to Jacob? Did God change his name? Jacob one night's wrestling with the angel of the Lord and he tries to overpower the angel of the Lord and the angel of the Lord touches his hip and knocks it out of socket and, and Jacob walks with a limp the rest of his life. And what does Jacob's name change to? Israel, which means one who struggles with God. So the deceiver's name was changed to Israel. The deceiver's name was changed to Israel. And so Jesus is saying, here's an Israelite in whom there's no deceit. He's kind of drawing attention to Jacob. And although Nathanael was pretty blunt about Jesus, nothing good coming out of Nazareth, Jesus could see into his heart. Jesus could see into the depths of his soul and say, there's no ulterior motives there. This man's got pure motives. He's an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. And so when you think about Jesus for a moment here, he can peer into your hearts even this morning. There's a myth in our culture. There's a huge myth in our culture that nothing is hidden from God or that, 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 that you can hide from God, that you can do whatever you want and there's no consequences. Do you realize you cannot do anything in a vacuum where nobody, you may think nobody's ever going to know this. God knows it. There's a passage of scripture that's kind of scary. Hebrews 4.13. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Jesus peers into our hearts this morning and he knows everything about us Now that may be scary for you this morning if you're not a believer if you're not a believer it's a warning to you that jesus sees you and he sees your sin and on the day of judgment you're not going to be able to hide anything from him it's going to be all exposed now to the christian this morning that's encouragement because jesus knows Jesus knows exactly what's going on in our hearts. Jesus knows exactly what's going on in our lives. And it should give us great encouragement that Jesus sees and Jesus knows. Listen to what the psalmist says in Psalm 139. Listen to what David says. Oh, Lord, you've searched me and you know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Jesus, you know me. You search me. That should bring you great comfort for those of us here that are believers, that Jesus knows us deeply. He sees us. He's acquainted with us. He's there for us. He encourages us. He's the seer into hearts. What's the sixth thing that we see about Jesus? Jesus is the king of Israel. And I would say not just the king of Israel, but the king of the universe. But listen to what Nathaniel says here. When, when Jesus peers into his heart, when Jesus confronts him, look at verse 49. 
Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. This is nothing less than Nathanael's confession of the absolute rulership and sovereignty and kingship of Christ. Yes, Jesus is the Lamb of God that takes away our sins. He is Savior. Amen. But may I remind you that he's also Lord. There's a lot of people in our culture that like Jesus as Savior. I get my free ticket to heaven. I get my sins forgiven. I get my guilty conscience dealt with. I like the idea of Jesus being Savior. But people bristle at the thought of Jesus being Lord because that means he has to demand allegiance. He has the right to rule your life. You bow to him as king. He's the sovereign authority in your life. You cannot, may I repeat, you cannot take Jesus as Savior and not take him as Lord. You've got to take both. You cannot have a half Christ. He's either Savior and Lord. He's not one or the other. You see, many people like the gentle Jesus, don't they? The gentle, nice, peaceful Jesus that walks around and with his sandals and gives cool stories and picks up little children and loves on them. Does Jesus do that? Yes. But if you read the Gospels, Jesus is a man who demands allegiance and he confronts sin and he's the one who is the king. He threatens people's security. May I remind you of an image of Jesus that we need to have? There's the Jesus in the manger, the cute, cuddly Jesus. But yet there's an image of Jesus in Revelation of who Jesus is and who he's going to be when he comes back. Revelation 19, 15 through 16. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty on his robe and on his thigh. He has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Is this the Jesus that you see this morning? The one coming back on a white horse. Now here's the last issue. And it's probably the most important in our culture. Seventhly and finally, we see Jesus as the only way to heaven. Look at verse 50 and 51. I need to explain this to you because you may get a little, little like, what's, what's going on here? Verse 50, Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. Again, it's about seeing. You're going to see greater things. You're going to be amazed. You're going to see me in all my glory. As a matter of fact, look at verse 51. He said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, what in the world does it mean to see angels descending and ascending on the Son of Man in this whole image of the heaven being opened up? Who did we just talk about in the Old Testament? Jacob. We are climbing Jacob's ladder. You guys aren't with me here. Ladder. Do you remember the story of Jacob? In Genesis chapter 28, Jacob is on the run from Esau. And he goes and he camps out and he sleeps on a rock and he has a dream. Do you remember what that dream said? Genesis 28, 12. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth and the top of the ladder reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on the ladder. And in this dream... 
God proceeds to remind Jacob that I made a promise to Abraham. I made a promise to Isaac. I'm making the same promise to you. You're going to have a people. You're going to have a nation. You're going to have a promised land. You're going to have descendants. It's the Abrahamic blessing. But then notice what happens later on down in the passage. Genesis 28, 16. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. He called the place Bethel, which means house of God. Now, what does Jacob see in his dream? He sees a ladder going up to where? Heaven, the portal of heaven. A ladder's open to heaven. You have angels ascending, descending, going up and down on this ladder. Now, what does Jesus say about that? Jesus flips it and says, what Jacob saw in his dream is a foreshadowing of me. I'm the only one that came down from heaven, and I'm the only one that can get you back up to heaven. I am the ladder. I am the only door. I am the only way into heaven. There is no other way. It's just what Jesus said in John 14, 6. Jesus said to them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So how do you get to heaven? How do you get to the house of God? Do you climb up this ladder yourself? Or do you trust in Jesus, who's the only way? You see, here's the issue in our culture today. Most people don't have an issue with Jesus if he's one of many ways. If he's one of many gurus, if he's one of many teachers, if he's one of many paths, that's okay. Because you've got Krishna, and you've got Buddha, and you've got Allah, and you've got Mormonism, you've got Jehovah's Witnesses, and you've got whatever Oprah says, you've got this, you've got that. But the moment that you stand up and say, no, listen, Jesus is not one of many ways, he is the only way, that's when you get in trouble. Because we're saying, people say, that's intolerant, that's bigoted. How can you say, how can you dare say that Jesus is the only way? That makes you arrogant. And I say back to them, I'm not saying anything that Jesus himself didn't say. I'm just quoting what Jesus said about himself. Let me give you some popular quotes from people about Jesus. Quote, one of the biggest mistakes humans make is to believe there's only one way. Actually, there are many diverse paths leading to what you call God. Who said that? Oprah Winfrey. Stephen Colbert from the Colbert Report on Comedy Central says this, Though I am a committed Christian, I believe everyone has a right to their own religion. Be you Hindu, Jewish, or Muslim, I believe there are infinite paths to accepting Jesus as your personal Savior. Let me remind you what Acts 4.12 says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, this whole passage is about seeing Jesus. Come and see. See Jesus. And my question for you this morning is, have you seen Jesus? Now, there are two responses this morning in light of this passage of Scripture. There's two ways to respond. Here's the first. If you're here this morning and you never, ever have pledged allegiance to Jesus... 
You've never repented of your sins. You've never trusted in Christ. You've never given your life. You've never surrendered your life to Jesus. You've never trusted in Christ alone for salvation is the only way. If you've never pledged allegiance to him, today is the day of salvation. The Bible says, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. The Bible says, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So today, what better day than leading right up to Christmas 2013 than for the very first time to pledge allegiance to Jesus? There may be many in this room today who need to do that. But you've never submitted your life to Christ. You've never trusted Christ for salvation. Would you do that today? I pray that you've seen him in all of his majesty and you bow to him as the king to pledge your allegiance to him. Here's the second response. This is to those of us who've already done that. Those of us that have already pledged allegiance to Jesus. Those of us that are already Christians. What does Andrew do and what does Philip do to their friends and to their family? They go and say, come and see. May we this Christmas have the the courage, the risk-taking, the boldness to be those that go to our lost friends and family and coworkers and those that don't know Jesus and go to them like Philip and Andrew and say, come and see. Come and see the Savior that I worship. Come and see Jesus and then give them the gospel. Give them the biblical portrait of who Jesus is. Would God raise up Phillips and Andrews that go outside of their comfort zone and go to their friends and go to their families and go to the nations and go to the ends of the earth and tell people who don't see Jesus and don't know Jesus and say to them, come and see. Come and see this Jesus. Come and see why he's worthy of worship. And when we tell them to come and see. We want to give them the biblical view of Jesus, not the frosty, hazy view that happens when you don't scrape your windshield and you start taking out cars on a cold morning on the way to college, but through the scriptures. The old hymn tells us to do this. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory. And grace. I want to ask you to bow your heads this morning as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper. And part of taking the Lord's Supper, celebrating communion, is it's an opportunity for us to afresh see Christ. Now, it's symbolic in the body and bread and the fruit and the cup. But as we take the Lord's Supper, it's a visual reminder to us of who Jesus is and his body and his blood being broken and shed for us on the cross. So I want us to spend just a few moments in silent prayer asking the Holy Spirit to open our eyes to reflect upon who Jesus is. That he's the Lamb of God that takes away our sin that he's the one that changes our identity. He's the one that demands allegiance. He's the fulfillment of prophecy. He's the seer into hearts. He's the king of Israel. He's the only way to heaven. He's wonderful. He's glorious. He's beautiful. May this Christmas our eyes be open to the glory of who Jesus is. Spend just a few moments this morning in silent prayer seeing Jesus come before you this morning and we're so thankful that you've, number one, you've given us the Holy Spirit 
And Holy Spirit, I'm thankful that you open our eyes to the glories of who Christ is. Without you, Holy Spirit, we couldn't see Jesus. We couldn't understand the scriptures. So open our eyes to the truth of who Jesus is. Jesus, thank you for being glorious, being, being the one who, who we can pledge our allegiance to. And, and Lord, my prayer is that maybe some for the very first time this morning would pledge allegiance to you as their Lord and Savior. And Lord, for the rest of us who've already done that, may we be bold. Not just this Christmas, but all year round. And being like Philip and being like Andrew, that we go to those without you and say, come and see. Come and see Jesus. Come and see what we have. Come and see who he is. Come and receive forgiveness. Come and receive salvation. Come and see. May this Christmas be a special time of seeing the glories of Christ. And Lord, may our hearts be prepared this morning to take the Lord's Supper. The Bible says to examine ourselves to see if there's any, if there's any sin in our life. And before we eat the bread and drink the cup, to examine ourselves. So we want to do that this morning as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper. Let me pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.